As we come today, we're going to look at Psalm 51 today. And so as we look at Psalm 51, uh, let's give a little bit of a background uh, of this psalm. Uh, it tells us here that this is um, the psalm that was written after uh, David had taken Bathsheba as his own. had tried to cover up the fact that he... How many people know the story? How many people know the story? Most people know the story? All right. You know what? So we'll give a quick view on everything and not have to go through the whole thing. David's king, supposed to be out doing battle. For some reason, he decides to stay back, not doing his responsibility. Sees Bathsheba, who's not his wife, decides that he's going to have her, has her brought... To her, him, they have relations. All of a sudden, find out later on, she goes, um, something happens when you do this, and so now we've got to try to figure out how to do this today. Um, there you go, exactly. So, so we have this, and so all of a sudden, David's like, let's have Uriah show up, and he tries, David tries to cover up his sin. And he begins to say, Uriah, I've brought you in. This is great. Banquet. Now go home. Be with your wife. It's going to be fantastic because David wants to go ahead and cover up his sin. And so as he's doing all this, Uriah is an honorable man. And he says, the men are out in the field. Why would I do this? And so he doesn't do that. And so finally, David can't cover up his sin. It's going to show up before him. Everybody's going to find out. And so basically he says, the only way I can cover this up, tells his generals, put him in the highest moment of the fighting, and then everybody pull back. He'll get killed. And then I will marry Bathsheba, and then nobody will ever know about this sin, and I'm off scot-free. That was the plan. That was the plan. There's only one problem with that plan. How do you hide your sin from God Almighty? How do you hide your sin from God Almighty? So we know this as fact. We don't know exactly how long... It takes David, but we know facts that the child is born and that Nathan finally comes to him. So somewhere between nine months and a year, David has acted like this sin has not mattered, been oblivious to it, living his life, justifying. And finally, God in his great love sends the prophet Nathan to confront David on his sin. Notice what I said. God, in his great love, sent Nathan to confront David on his sin. Now, imagine you're a prophet. And you have to go to the most beloved king and call him out on his sin. 
right? I mean, how can you call out somebody? How can you call out somebody who's beloved? How can you call out? How can you call out this person who's won battles and done all the things? How can you call them out? Here's how you call them out, because nobody's above God in the standard. Nobody. David was a man after God's own heart, but guess what? Even David was under the standard of God. So Nathan went and told him a parable, and in the midst of this parable, which I guess wasn't a parable to David, but he tells him, and when he tells him this story, and if you, again, I'm going through the 2 Samuel 12. You can read that yourself, 2 Samuel 12. But when Nathan sets David up by telling him about this, this, this situation that happens, and David still being a good, just man, king is irate by Nathan telling him this story. And what's Nathan telling you're the man. You're the man. This, this thing that you're angry about, this injustice that has happened, it's you. You're the one that's done this. You're so irate about injustice being done, you're the one that didn't do justice. And David finally, finally comes to his senses and he begins to repent. Now, there's consequences that's going to happen. He's told this. There's consequences of what's going to happen from this choice. But Nathan tells him, but your sin will not be, your life will not be taken on this. When we get to Psalm 51, what we have here in this psalm is what do we do with our sin. What do we do with our sin? Once we see, we become aware and we see it here, what do we do with our sin? Again, you and I have a tendency to either look at our sin and we devalue it. We say it's not that big of a deal. Or we put so much value on it that we say, I am the worst and there's no way God could ever forgive me. But the value of sin is placed with God's valuing system. You remember the old Coke machines? Remember the old Coke machines? You know, I, I remember a couple of times I would go back, back, and I know some of y'all would sit there and say, I, I know we can play the game if everybody knows how it goes, and it got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, okay? But I remember at least it being 50 cents. Every now and then you could find the big cake colors for 25, maybe 35, but I mean, at least 50 cents is what it would be, 50 cents. And I remember at that point in time, if I ever got to have a Coke, because my mother did not want me to have a Coke, you'd never understand why she wouldn't want me to have a Coke, but still... And we get a chance to have a Coke. And so here I had this moment and I was going and I was going to get a Coke. And I took my quarter and I put in the first one and it would do that. Ching, ching, ching. And then I took that second quarter and I put it in and it go. Ching, 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 brr. And I picked it up and I put it in and it went. Ching, 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 brr. And then you're just like going. You know, you're like whatever it is. And you're like and you pick it up and you put it in. And like. Brr. 
And I'm like going, I'm about ready. I got it. I want a Coke. And then all of a sudden you find out, you look at it. It's a Canadian quarter. It's a Canadian quarter. When we look at times and we look at our sin, we either sometimes put too much value on it or we don't put enough value on it. The real value is not what we think it is. What does God think it is? What does God, what is, what is the worth he puts on sin? And then what do we do with our sin? What am I called to do with my sin? Remember, David is not a Gentile. He's not a non-believer. He is a follower of Yahweh. What is a believer called to do with their sin? That's what the Psalm 51 begins to give us an idea here. So let's, let's read through it. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The first thing we catch in this moment is the recognizing of how much mercy that we need from God. We are, we are asking God that we need his mercy. We do not deserve that. And yet we are crying out and asking God, Lord, give me mercy. If I got what I deserved, if I got what I deserved, Can you think of many times that you have not gotten what you deserved? Mercy was given to you. There's been times where I had a few times where I ran into police officers because of my driving habits when I was younger. And a couple times as I would run into these police officers, usually I wouldn't run into them. They would be the ones that were tracking me down, telling me, and so, exactly. And for a while, for some reason, I got pulled over, and every single time, they would look at me, and they would go, you know you're going too fast. I'm going to let you off with a warning. Now, you would think that I would have learned at that point in time, when you get one chance to get mercy, that you'd be okay with that. But there's times that I didn't catch that. So finally, as an adult, where I had slowed down some, not perfect, but I'd slowed down some, I go and I'm living in Campbellsville. I'm in Marion County, and I'm driving. And as I am driving through there, I am really trying to pay attention this time. But it goes from a 55 into a 45. And I pay no attention, and the cop pulls me over. Do you know what I have been used to for the last few years when I have been pulled over? Warning. A warning. 
do you know what this police officer did? And it's the slowest I'd ever been pulled over for in my entire life. <laughs> he looked at me and he said, I've got you going this fast overward. Over, so this is your ticket. You can call and try to settle it beforehand, but this is your ticket. And I was like going, what a jerk. I can't believe he's doing this. What had I forgotten? What had I forgotten? I'd been given mercy so much, I just expected that I was supposed to get it. Like I deserved it. And that somehow I could go about doing what I wanted because I was supposed to get this. We've missed it. When we look upon God and presume that somehow he owes us something, we have missed the whole part of God's heart. We have missed the part of God's heart. We do not deserve God's grace. We do not deserve his mercy. Why is David able to cry out to God and beg for mercy? Why is he so humble right now? Even though God has given him a victory over Goliath, he's allowed him to have all these battles won. He's allowed Saul, who's tried to do things, and he's lifted David up. Why is all of a sudden he comes back and he says, have mercy have mercy on me, O oh God. What changes? Let's go to the next verse in verse three. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Think about this, church, for I know my transgressions. David had made for a year and acted like nothing was wrong with what he did. He was just going to live life because he was the king and God had blessed him and God had done all these things for him. And then all of a sudden, finally, Nathan, God's love, sent Nathan and confronted him with his sin. He said, you are this person. The person you're all upset about because you say this person did an injustice, you're that person. See, you and I, sometimes, we either presume on God's love and we act like what we do is not a big deal. But that's not how the Bible looks at it. Sin, whether you are a person that has yet to believe in Christ or you are a Christian, sin is always deadly. Sin always has a cost. Sin is always committed against a holy God. And just become a Christian doesn't mean that it's taken away the effects and the consequences. How does that make us feel right now to have this conversation? Is this an uncomfortable conversation or is this one of those right now? Because you know what I have found again at times if we don't watch it? As Christians, we begin to just not really worry about whether it's sin anymore or not because we got Jesus. We're not as bad as David, though, so it's okay. Watch this. Make excuses. I'm not like those people over there. I'm not as bad as this person. I'm not. We... 
when we are confronted by the Holy Spirit, God's doing it because he loves us. God's doing it because he cares. God's doing it because he died to do something different within our lives. And he is coming to us and telling us this thing here is death. And it is an offense to me. And I'm calling you to come to me to cry out in mercy, to recognize the bankruptness of your life and to recognize in this moment, I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. What are excuses right now that you've gotten numb to that you don't even think are sin anymore? Now, let me say this again. We're, not, we're also not called to live in guilt and shame, right? That's not it. But there is a balance of walking with God that we don't try to make our sins higher than what the cross has paid for. Nothing can outdo the love of God. There's no sin that we can do that we try to put value on and say, well, God could love me, but not because of this, because this is the worst sin. Or what are you telling me? That, his, that, that, that the cross, that there's some sin that's more powerful than the cross. So we don't live in this, but we also don't live with this. I'm a Christian, and so it doesn't matter. You know what? It's okay for me to talk about this person over here because you know what? They're an idiot. We can think that way because of what this person is doing and because of how we think. But let me share with you. The Bible says this. If you call somebody a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Why? Because when you look at an individual and you say they are, they are an idiot and they always will be, you are saying, God, you messed up by making that person and even you couldn't transform and change them. When we look at people based on how we feel instead of viewing them for how God has made them, that's sin. And you know what? There's so many... There's so many ways that when we're not confronted with God's truth and love that we make excuses to behave in ways that Jesus died to save us from wrath. David knows it. David says, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Now listen to what he says here. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Ultimately, when we sin, when we think about certain people, there's certain people that we think about and we're like going, I don't want to deal with them and I don't want to do this and I don't want to do that. There may be issues of trust that we figure out. Is, that, is trust able to be able to be figured out? But let me share with you about love and forgiveness. You can't withhold that from people. You can't hold love and forgiveness. Trust, it may be hard to figure out how to deal with trust with people, but love and forgiveness, you, you can't withhold that. Why? Because Jesus has never withheld that from you. And ultimately, when we're talking about relationships, when there are people in this moment that we say, I will never forgive them. You, me, have put ourselves in a position. You're not just sinning against that person. You're sinning against God. You're sinning against God. This is why David, David, David has murdered 
He has murdered. He has committed adultery. He has harmed things within. He has caused soldiers that were over or that were under him to commit an atrocity. And yet David has this one recognition, this one, this, this, this understanding of all the people that I've offended. Yes, I've done that. And there may be reconciliation, but of all the people I've sinned against, you, God, that's it. You only have I sinned against. You. Try weighing that out with the sin that you have at some point in time. When you realize that all of the sin that you have really goes against God and God himself. I'm not telling you not to do reconciliation with people. I'm not telling you. I'm telling you that when you really recognize what's going on, ultimately every sin that we ever do is against God himself. When we have a right understanding with God, there's a way that God does that in order to teach us how to love people. But if you start with people, you'll never get God understood right. It's God first. Everything else makes sense. He goes on and says this, against you and you only have sinned and done evil in your sight so that you may be justified by your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We could go into the idea of original sin here. We could go into this, which I think is theologically, of course, is true, that we're born into sin. But I think there's also something here. David, I believe that truth, 100%. But also, David's not making excuses for his sin. He's not making excuses. Who makes excuses for their sin in here? Make excuses, right? No God's standard, but somehow, because of these certain circumstances, I'm above the standard. And I have found myself being above the standard often. That's what happens. It's easier to point out somebody else's flaws than it is for God to point out your flaws. And I've realized this, I'm okay with God pointing out some of my flaws, I can take those. But the other ones, I'm like going, <laughs> I want to pick and choose. But David comes to a moment where he says this, I am not above God's standard. I am below. I am sitting here in this moment and there is, I don't make excuses for my sin. Church, do we honestly come to God with no excuses and just repent and confess before him? Or do we say, God, I understand, but... Do you know what he did? Do you know what she did? God, I was in a difficult moment, and so thus, it, it, just, it just had to happen. When we are finally broken by what God says is sin, and we begin to cry out for mercy, there are no excuses. Because what are you going to tell the God that you've sinned against? How are you going to somehow convince him that what he said is wrong? You and I sometimes, I don't know, I, I guarantee, there's some people in here, there's some people in here, y'all could win an argument, right? Anybody in here? I'm one of those people that I will tell you right now, and I, I've said this before, when it comes to me and my wife and we have discussions, if it, get, if, it turns into, if it turns into a discussion where we're disagreeing on something, I can more likely than not 
at times talk circles around you. Is that true? I'm in trouble now. Watch this. She's going she's gonna to say this. She's going to sit there and say, I'm going to give it to you because we're in the middle of a sermon, but later on we're going to have another discussion right now. You know it? But here's the thing. But here's what I'll tell you. Sometimes I can word things in such a way, and my wife is brilliant and intelligent, but there are ways that I can talk around things in order to get a point, in order to prove it. But you know what stinks? What stinks are the two things that my wife does to me. There are times when my wife does this. Okay, that's what you think. Just tell me I'm right, woman. That's all I want to hear, okay? Admit that I'm right. Or the second thing she does is this. And I've said this before. The second thing she does is this. You need to go pray. What do you do with that? Do you know the reason why that's both of those stink? You know the reason why both of those stink? Because in that moment, the only thing I'm worried about is winning and convincing. I'm not worried about truth. I just want to win from my perspective. God has given my wife wisdom to wherever she does not at times fight with me because she's like going, I know you're wrong. And until you see God, you're never going to admit it. But you go and pray, see what he says. I will say this, she's right every time she does that. Every time, because we deal with God. And it's not about trying to not, it's not about being right. It's about God. What is the, there's no excuses here. What is your truth? And let me receive it based on what you are saying. It goes on and says this. And listen to verse six. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach wisdom Teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God doesn't want it. God wants us to be different in here. Not wordsmiths that can say whatever. A different person. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David knows that he is filthy from his sin. He is unclean. He is nasty. The guilt and the shame face him. His sin is right here. And he begins to cry out, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. It's like you are writing and you, as you're writing this letter, you end up saying something in that letter that you wish you hadn't have said. And it's just like you want to be able, and it's ink. Back in the day before you have whiteout and everything else or those things, you can't, you had to start all over, didn't you? Or you had to scribble, but you don't scribble it because it looks bad. But David in this moment is basically saying this. There's no, there's no whiteout in his mind. There's this, it's like, going, can you just blot out what has happened here? Can you just blot it out? Because when I read it, when I see it, I see my failure. I see where I've messed up. Can you remove it? And he says this. Create in me. 
So verse nine, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right or steadfast spirit within me. David gets it. See, when we are dealing with our sin, this is not about, well, just let me get away from the consequences. This is not about consequences. It's about the very fact and the way that we're supposed to relate to God is not happening because we tend to fail at every single moment. And so David gets to the crux of it. It's not about get me out of these consequences, help me not to feel these painful things. He is telling him, the only way that I can relate to you, God, is create in me a heart that desires and wants to do what you want because this heart is broken. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit, a spirit that will stand for what you want and can do it. See, church, think about this. Jesus didn't die to make us better people. We have to become new creations. We have to be born again. If you came to Christ only saying, help me to be a better person, you've missed the gospel. You're dead in your transgressions. And unless Jesus brings you to life, you're the same old person you've always been. Doesn't matter how you try to dress it up or how to make it fit. You cannot do what God wants. But Jesus didn't come just to forgive you of your sins. He rose from the dead so that those who follow him become a new creation with the ability and the heart and the desire to follow after God. David is not wanting to get out of his consequences. He is wanting to be a new creation, one that can actually relate to God the way that God wants when we look at our lives, is our desire to relate to God or is it just to not do bad things? Those are two different things. I don't want to be a person that's known for not doing bad things. I want to be known for a person that walks with God, that looks like God, that loves like God. And when I blow it, I'm able to say, I've blown it, but there's a Jesus that's not given up on me and that people can look back later and say this, and I've watched what God has done in his life of how he loves people, of how the grace that he speaks with people, of the truth that he speaks, of how he does it. It looks like Christ, not just not doing bad things. Now listen to this. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That almost sounds like somebody should make a song out of that. You know it? 
That's a whole other sermon. But you know, it almost sounds like a song should be there. Cast me not away from your presence. You know, I will tell you right now, I grew up in a church taught, they didn't say it this way, but it's the phrase that's used, once saved, always saved. I believe in eternal security. But I'm going to share with you right now. Here's where I think it scares me. When all of a sudden a person comes to Christ and they say, ah, I'm secure in Christ, but it never affects and you presume upon God's grace to live however you want, that's not biblical. You can't find it in the Bible. And if you're only going to talk about no one can snatch me out of his hands, but not talk about how much God hates sin and yearning after him, you are only cherry picking the verses that you want and not really seeking God's face. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now listen to 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you catch this? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul's the one that's talked about the elect and the election. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then he also says this in 13. But it is God who works within you to work and to do his good will. Do you see the tension right here? The tension is this. God's at work in your life. He's doing something, not just you. You're joining him. He's holding you and keeping you tight. But Paul also says in the verse beforehand, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is a balance in this moment. Not that I'm always scared. I'm gonna lose my salvation. I'm gonna lose my salvation. I'm gonna lose my salvation. But it's this. God, don't ever let me take for granted that which you have done for me and act like I no longer need to respond to you in faith. It scares me to death to see churches full of people that believe in doctrine and will defend that doctrine left and right but will not look and live out the very Christ that died for them. When we look like Christ, all these things come with a beautiful tension that makes me grateful to God that as I'm working out this salvation, it's not me earning my salvation. It's me not presuming upon God's grace and saying, God, teach me to fear you with a holy fear, but also with a confidence that you're at work within me and you're not done yet. It goes on and says this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. God, if you do this in my life, then I have a testimony to tell others about how good you are. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. What would have happened if we'd have never known about David's adultery? What happens if we'd have never known about David's murder? 
You know what we'd have thought? David, man after God's own heart, given that title, he was perfect. And then we would have said this, I could never live up to something like that because I know how messed up that I am. I know how sinful that I am. And there's, how could we ever do this? We would end up putting people like that on a pedestal that are human just like us. Church, the things and the the moments that we go through, even the sin and failures that you have gone through by God's grace, please hear me, are not meant to be hidden. And I'm going to say the most uncomfortable thing in that moment, but here's the reality. Do you know the reason why the church is as sick as it is today in America? Hmm? Because when we get to a point of making sure it's all about Jesus instead of about us, every moment of our life, everything, the good and the bad, is able to come out and say, let me tell you about how God has helped me in the, in the moments where I didn't deserve and the great things, and then let me tell you how I've failed my Lord, and yet by His grace, He has restored me and continued to do a work in my life. He's not done with me yet. Right now, if I were to begin to say, hey, can we talk about the different sins that we have committed in our lives and how God continues to be at work within us? Do you know what's going to happen? Creep, 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 creep. Nobody's saying a word. Maybe it might happen, but here's the reason why. In most churches in America, you know the reason why that's not going to happen? Because as soon as I say it, people are going to... They're going to leave, jump on me, judge me. They're going to sit there and say... I can't believe you would do <gasps> Except for the reality is this. Do you actually think that somehow there's a sin in here that Jesus can't forgive? And do you somehow think that you have not committed an atro- a, a, a horrible sin? See, that's the thing. What did I tell you? What's the value we put on our sin? Right? We either put it, it's not a big deal, or we put it on there. When we look at it and we say this, I'm going to tell you where I have blown it, brothers and sisters. And I want you to know right now, Jesus continues to transform me to become more and more like him. And what's the power when we lift up Jesus and we begin to confess that way? All of a sudden we begin to realize, I'd have never thought that about that person. And yet that gives me hope for the own personal struggles I go through. Oh, did I say that, personal struggles? How many of you in here right now, you have a struggle with sin? You're either dead or, or this, or you've not encountered God in a long time about what sin really is. You have created your own standard of what sin is, and thus you never, ever break it. But when we come before an almighty God, and we conf- He convicts us of our sinfulness against Him, and we ask Him, you've got to do a work so that I can relate to you, not just in avoiding consequences, but to relate to you relationally the way that you want. And when he does that in our lives, that we get to proclaim how great our God is.
Church, I want to encourage you that as we find ways, that part of the ways that we lift up God is through singing, through listening to the word, through serving out there, but one of the ways that we serve each other. There are moments that we confess our sins one to another. And as we do that, we're not just creating a self-help group to not do the sin. Accountability is important, yes. Here's the more thing. But we're also agreeing that we're going to God because only He can transform us. What would church be like if all of a sudden, in the right way, all those elements started to happen in the right way? It didn't become just only confession. It didn't become only a sermon. It didn't become only singing. It didn't become only serving. It became everything that God has commanded the church to be about. When we tell people to draw sinners back. Why? Because I am one. Not only, but I'm also a saint to draw back to Christ. And this is what he says. This is where we wrap up. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Listen to 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim it to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. God wants us to deal with our sin based on his terms. And the greatest way that Jesus has ever dealt with sin all the way around is that Jesus Christ, God, in, God came in flesh while we were still enemies and he said, I will have grace and mercy upon those who call me enemy. Jesus lived a life without sin. He was beaten and mocked in the punishment of sin, and ultimately crucified in his blood shed. Not because he had done something wrong, but because the world had done something wrong with a price that we could not pay, and Jesus paid the ultimate price as the God-man of the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And not only for those who put faith in Jesus to be forgiven of their sins, to know his love, but also the promise of this, that those who receive Christ, the resurrected Christ, not only can find forgiveness, but are a new creation in Christ Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are a new creation. 
This flesh still struggles with sin, but the nature that has been given to us because of Christ is now able to say, God, I will follow you. Not by my sheer willpower, because of your spirit that lives inside of me. And when I sin against you, you will put a great conviction upon my heart to truly come before you and say, God, not my will, not the way that I want, but Lord, yours. I am sorry for this sin. And I know that you've paid for it. But God, create in me a heart, a life that I no longer make excuses for my sin. I'm not above the standard. Lord, I'm below subservient. You are the master, the Lord of my life, the God that I worship. Do that in my life. Ultimately, we see what David was longing for. We see a fulfillment in the cross and the resurrection, but the attitude of David is still what every Christian should have. Even knowing I am forgiven in Christ, but my heart should be broken over my sin. And I should ask God, create in me, not just not to have consequences, but create in me a life that relates to you in relationship that's pleasing to you. What are you called to do with your sin? Know and acknowledge your sin. Know that God cleanses and renews us. God cleanses and renews us. He's willing to do that. And restoration, restoration to God leads to declaration of Him. Anybody have any questions today? That's dangerous. Anybody have any questions about this today? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? And if you have a relationship with Jesus, are you allowing Him to do a work in your life that makes you more sensitive to what it is to relate to Him and pleasing and not created some type of excuse to live the way that you want instead of for the Lord and Savior who has saved you?